we come to um, our teaching. Our evening service is really stripped back compared to our morning service. We, we simply have worship and teaching. And I want to highlight a few resources before we, we kick off tonight. First one is a book called, or a big pamphlet called Transformed. Not transformed, transformed. Published by Evangelical Alliance. I'm pretty sure it's free. This copy is not free. This is my copy. You can't have it. But if you want a copy, we can get it for you. It's dead easy to read. Some really good stuff in there. If you want a little bit more than that, a little book by a guy called Von Roberts. He's an English vicar called Transgender. Uh, this book is excellent. It's about 60... 70 pages long. You'll read it in a night, maybe a couple of sittings. Uh, this was actually recommended by our church uh, and the General Assembly a couple of years ago. Absolutely fantastic little book. If you want a little bit more, God and the Transgender Debate by Andrew T. Walker. Uh, these are both good book company resources. Fantastic. Um, come have a look at them at the end. Please don't steal them. That would be wrong. Uh, just saying. Uh, and then the final book I want to recommend is this one here. It's called The Bible. You might have heard of it. It's, it's really, really good. Uh, it's, it's worth reading. And we're going to go there now. So if you have one near you or one on your device, or do you know what, just simply look at the screen behind me. I want us to read just a couple of verses from Romans chapter 12. Listen now for the word of God. Just the first two verses. Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. Amen. I want us to pray as we start. We're, tonight, if you haven't already picked up on it, although um, I'm, I'm sure most of you are aware of what we're thinking about and talking about tonight, it's the area of transgender. And this is my first time teaching on it here in Orangefield. And I want to put a caveat out at the very start. There are some things I'm going to say tonight that I might not necessarily get right. So I ask for your grace in that. We're having a conversation. We're, we're trying to figure this out and listen to God as we explore what he's doing in his heart. So if there's something I say tonight that feels hard, if there's something I say tonight that, that you're really uncomfortable with or even makes you feel angry, the easy thing to do is just to walk out and never come back. I would even go as far as to say that's maybe a slightly cardly thing to do. But instead, take a deep breath and come and grab me. I'll be hanging about afterwards or even better still, grab Gary. Uh, <laughs> and just say that thing you said. Can we talk about it? And, and let's do the conversation. There's too much going on out there in the world with the media that polarizes this conversation. And you see people with different opinions lobbing hand grenades at each other, talking at each other, but refusing to listen to each other. 
That's not the way we do ideas and preaching and conversation and debate and life here in Orangefield. So if there's something, come and speak, and I promise you I'll listen. I promise you I will. Let's pray as we begin tonight. Holy Spirit, you are welcome in this place. Begin now, Lord, to to sift our hearts and sift our minds. Help us to be really honest with ourselves as to why we are here tonight. Maybe for some people it's because this is a live issue. Gender dysphoria and and, and trans. It's something you experience directly. Maybe for other people here tonight, um, you have friends or family members. And you're not quite sure how to how to respond to them, how to listen, how to talk, how to share. And for others, maybe you're here tonight and, and, and this, is, this is removed, but, but you want to explore your thinking on it. You have nobody in your life that you're aware of that, that experiences gender dysphoria. And yet you want to be more informed. Father, whatever reason, we all come tonight as people on a journey. And I ask, Lord, come and meet us, each one of us individually, in the place where we're at on that journey. Come in truth and come in love. And Father, I offer you my words. May what is of me fall to the ground and may what is of you penetrate every heart. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. I want to start with a story tonight. It's not a Christian story. It's entitled My Trans Daughter. It's a true story. Sharon has a teenage daughter who is transgender. She describes how Nikki was born in a male body, but felt from a very young age that she should be a girl, that he should be a girl, sorry. It was a relief to talk to someone who understood. When my child Nick was about two, I realized that he wasn't playing with toys that I expected a boy to play with. He was interested in dolls and girly dressing up clothes. At that age, it doesn't really matter. You just think there are lots of different things, so so I never made a fuss about it. But when he was four years old, Nick told me that God had made a mistake, that he should have been a girl. I asked my GP what I should do. He told me to wait and see that it might just be a phase that would go away. But it didn't. It got stronger. One day when Nick was six, we were in the car, and he asked me when he could go and have an operation to have his willy cut off. 
His older cousin had told him about these things. I spoke to a friend who's a psychiatrist. He said I should contact the Travistock Clinic for children and young people with gender issues. He also told me that the medical term is gender dysphoria. And when I looked it up online, I found a charity that helps children with gender identity issues and their families. I also spoke to my GP again, who referred us to the local mental health unit. The person at the unit had worked at Travistock and knew about gender identity issues. He was brilliant. It was such a relief to talk to someone who understood what was going on. I blamed myself, but he reassured me it wasn't my fault. We were then referred to the Travistock Clinic. The team from the clinic came to Nick's school and talked to the teachers. They helped the teachers to understand that Nick wasn't being difficult and that this may or may not be a phase. When a child is young, you just don't know. Nick desperately wanted to be female all the time. When she was 10, we feminized her from Nick to Nicky at home. The following year, Nicky started secondary school as a girl. The school was very supportive. But because she moved up to secondary school with her peer group, everybody knew. In the first week, she was called tranny and a man-beast. She was spat on and attacked in the corridors. Within her first six months of being at school, she took four overdoses. When we pulled her out of school, we then pulled her out of school. But after a few months, she decided to go back. Each month, the bullying and isolation got worse. Nikki started to self-harm. At the beginning of year nine, I transferred her to another secondary school, but unfortunately, the kids there found out, and the pattern repeated itself. At that point, I withdrew her from school completely, and the education welfare officer found her a place at a specialist inclusive learning center which is a unit for children who can't cope with mainstream schooling for various reasons. The story goes on and unfolds. But I want to start there tonight. Because what we're talking about isn't simply a theological issue. It's not a set of policies We're talking about people. We're talking about individual people created in the image of God who are worthy of dignity and worthy of respect and worthy of being loved. And let's never lose sight of that at any point. And that's really important. And we're not just talking about one person. The most recent statistics I've been able to get my hands on suggest there are currently 15,000 gender identity patients in the UK. 15,000. And many others who haven't yet came forward and spoken out loud about the inner turmoil that they're feeling. We're talking about real people. Depending on what statistics you read, between 64 and 73% experience bullying. 21% of those within the trans community avoid going out for fear of how other people will react and respond. And the rates of suicide amongst 
the transgender community are 41% higher than the rest of the population. This is not something people take lightly, and this is not something people make up, and this is not simply a fashionable trend, and this is not something people simply choose. Let me share some uh, terminology. I don't know where your starting point in this is. Uh, Maybe some of you actually work in this field. Maybe some of you have have family members or yourself uh, have experienced these feelings and have read loads about them and are, are, are much more expert than I am on it. Maybe some of you have simply picked up little bits of things on the news and in conversation and you actually don't know and are unclear. So, so I apologize if I'm teaching my granny how to suck eggs. I apologize if I don't mean to patronize, but let me just share a couple of terminology things at the start. The term cisgender refers to somebody whose gender identity and their biological sex are the same. Somebody who was born into a male body and in their mind feels very comfortable in, in that idea of being a bloke is someone who is cisgender, and equally for female as well. Gender dysphoria is the term uh, that is used for feeling your gender identity does not match your biological sex. Your mind and your body are in different places in the area of gender. Where How you feel in your mind is different than the biological sex that you were born with. Gender dysphoria. Intersex is someone, is, is different again. Intersex is someone who was born with biological attributes of both sexes. Maybe genitalia, maybe on the inside, but they're born and their physicality has elements of both sexes. Trans or transgender is an umbrella term. It doesn't mean one thing. It's an umbrella term for someone who feels that their gender does not fit with the body that they were assigned at birth. And the term non-binary refers to someone who doesn't choose to identify as male or as female, but sees gender as something that is much more fluid. There are dozens more terms out there, and there are more terms getting added to the conversation regularly, but that's an initial introduction, I suppose. I want to share um, just a little bit of the cultural journey around transgender and, and, and the trans story, if you like. And this is just a few snapshots. It's not taken in all of the journey at all, by any means. During the 20th century, there were different attempts in different parts of Europe, particularly to uh, pioneer transgender surgery. Um, and they weren't the first people to do it, but in 1966, gender reassignment surgery was very publicly pioneered in the John Hopkins University. And, and they, for a long time, were seen to be the leading light on this. In 1971, the term transgender was first used. In 1974, the first, medic, the first conference for medical professionals and social workers was held in Leeds, actually, of all places. The term trans is actually a British term. It was first coined and used 
1996. But for a lot of people, a lot of this was happening on the edges of society, and it wasn't mainstream. But there's been an acceleration in the past number of years, and you have to be living with your head in a bucket if you've missed that. In 2014, Time magazine ran with a headline that said, Transgender Tipping Point. And there was a picture on the screen, and the story attached to the picture was, what if you are born in a female body, yet know you're a man, but want to participate in society as a woman? What kind of man are you then? And the article then began to continue and unfold and unpack that story. 2014. 2015, uh, Vanity Fair very famously led with a picture of Caitlyn Jenner, who had previously been Bruce Jenner. 2018, Vogue magazine had their first trans model in it. And 2018 as well, Australia ordained their first trans clergy. There has been an acceleration in how society is understanding this idea of trans. I listened to a guy called John Tyson, I've mentioned him before, speak on this subject, and he was unpacking how this has been accelerating in society at an unprecedented rate. From years ago, you you would never have seen transgender mentioned in the news or in Netflix shows or documentaries, and now, if I can use the term normal, that is the perception of it. John talked about a thing called the Overton Window. Have you heard of this? The Overton Window refers to um, when politicians um, and media consultants are, are looking to bring ideas. They, they put it on the Overton window, which is a scale of what will be seen as acceptable in society and what seems like a totally out there idea. And, and what we've seen from, from trans activists is, is taking an idea that a number of years ago just seemed so far removed from anything we had seen or experienced, so far from our comfort zones. And and the idea is pushed. And then the same idea is pushed again, and the same idea is pushed again, and the same idea is pushed again. And once the same idea has been pushed 50, 100, 200 times, what happens to society is they, they start to feel a normalization by that idea. And when society starts to feel that idea becoming normalized, then a new idea is put on the table that is pushed, that is pushed, that is pushed. It's a, it's a tool to sensitize, desensitize culture and society. And what we see within it, and this is actually the words of the scale of the Overton window, the unthinkable becomes radical, the radical becomes acceptable, the acceptable becomes sensible, the sensible becomes popular, the popular becomes policy, and the policy becomes history. And a new idea is brought to the forefront to be introduced. And what we have seen are activists in the trans community 
using the, the train tracks of justice and equality that, that the gay community have used. And trans and gay are two different things, two very different things. But the trans community have, have used the same train tracks to run the same thought process and the same arguments through on equality and justice. And what we have seen is the, the normalization of transgender in our society at an unprecedented rate. It's happened so fast that, that psychologists, that doctors, that schools, let alone churches and ministers and families are struggling to keep up with what has been perceived as normal in society. I want to share a little bit around science. I'm, I'm cautious in this because I, I'm not a scientist in any way. I'm a theologian. Probably not a very good one either. But you'll forgive me for that, I hope. For years, this idea of gender dysphoria, whilst it didn't have labels, maybe, um, certainly the, the concept's not new. But for years... The understanding in, in the scientific community and the understanding in society as a whole was that physicality determined identity. And because physicality determined identity, the treatment for somebody who was experienced in a disconnect between the gender they felt in their mind and, and the reality of what their body said they were was a psychological treatment. Helping people with gender dysphoria to find a way to live within their body, within their biological sex. For years, that was the way this was approached and treated. Now, however, there's been a shift in thinking. And what we now see is the mind determines the identity. The mind has paramount over the physicality. So treatment isn't to to help the person alter the way they think and feel. Treatment is to change the physicality and change the, the outward expression of gender to fit with how the feelings are on the inside. So what we're seeing is uh, the recommendation is, is social transition from as young as three years old. People can, can change their name, can wear different clothes, can function essentially as a different gender. From the age of 12, hormone blockers are allowed to be used to delay the onset of puberty. From the age of 16, sex change hormones are allowed to be used. And then after that, surgery to alter the physicality of the body. I worry. Maybe you're comfortable with that. Maybe you're uncomfortable with that. I, I worry. I worry that public opinion and what we see in culture is actually driving the science. I'm going to share a couple of quotes. I'm sure there are plenty of quotes to articulate the other side of this argument. But I want to share a couple of quotes. Couple of quotes. One is from Dr. Paul McHugh. Von Roberts talks about Paul in his little book. Dr. McHugh was the chief psychiatrist at the John Hopkins University. And he says this, he was the chief psychiatrist. Dr. McHugh equates the argument to treating an anorexic patient with liposuction. His hospital had pioneered gender alteration surgery, but then ceased to offer it. I concluded that I had to provide, sorry, 
I, sorry, I concluded that to provide a surgical alteration to the body for these unfortunate individuals was to collaborate with a mental disorder rather than to treat it as such. He stepped back from his job because he disagreed with the current practice in medicine around it. Richard Horton, who is currently the chief editor of The Lancet, one of the oldest medical journals, has, and this is, you can read about this in Evangelical Alliance's document. Horton has critiqued the state of scientific research, generally saying the case against science is straightforward. Much of the scientific literature, perhaps half, may simply be untrue. Afflicted by studies with small sample sizes, tiny effects, invalid exploratory analysis, and flagrant conflicts of interest, together with an obsession for pursuing fashionable trends or dupe of dubious importance, science has taken a turn towards darkness. Given the poverty of research in this area, backed by the intensity of passion on the part of campaigners on all sides, everyone needs to be alert to the scope for superior assertions based on dubious science. He's a scientist saying that. The other thing that I find interesting is um, the Travistock and Portman Center, which is the, the, the clinic that the NHS offers that for young people and children who experience gender dysphoria. Dr. Polly Carmichael, um, who works there, has went on record as saying, and this is quite a famous quote that gets batted about in Christian circles, over 80% of children who come to Travistock Center eventually change their minds. Approximately 84% of children, and I mean that by, by primary or younger, who experience gender dysphoria in their primary years, once they move through puberty, eventually revert back to their biological sex. That's a very high statistic. The levels of mental health, poor mental health, the levels of attempted suicide and self-harm amongst those who experience gender dysphoria, both pre, during, and post-treatment, is incredibly high. And I'm genuinely scared that the way this is being talked about and the way this is being treated in society means that if a young person or even an adult experiences gender dysphoria, that they are almost put on a fate of complete, a slippery slope that brings them one direction. And I wonder, is anybody asking them just to pause and go slowly. The key question in all of this is what defines gender? Is it biology, what's between your legs? Is it psychology, what's between your ears? 
Is it society that these ideas of male and femaleness are, are ideas that have been constructed by society that have been opposed upon us subconsciously? Who gets to define gender? Or is it God himself? To answer that question, we have to ask the question, what meta-narrative we find ourselves in? What story do we tell ourselves to make sense of the world around us and the world we live in? For some, we live in a society that is post-Christian. At best, best, they have a vague concept of God, but God, who, who, who maybe did some stuff years ago, is now distant, removed, and irrelevant and certainly not actively involved in my life or your life. For others, post-Christian means atheistic, that there is nothing beyond the self. Certainly a post-Christian society believes in relative truth and radical individualism. Relative truth meaning you can think whatever you want. You've got to do what's right for you. You've got to become the best version of yourself. And yet what sounds really attractive, let's not be naive, let's wake up. All that society has done has exchanged one sense of institutional truth, let's say the church, for another sense of institutional truth. Social media, Subtly shaping and imposing ideas on what people think. Deconstructing. And, and, and from the trans activist mindset, it's not as simple as saying, well, we just want to let people to, to be male or female, whatever they feel like doing. That's not what it's saying. The, the agenda within it is actually to deconstruct the ideas of maleness and femaleness so gender is completely fluid on a sliding scale. The other thing in our post-Christian society is that idea of radical individualism, which at its very heart leaves you standing on your own to save yourself, to find fulfillment within yourself. And for me, that feels very bleak and almost terrifying. An alternative is to place ourselves within a Christian story, a Christian framework where, where Jesus' followers find themselves. Andrew Walker, the other author um, of some of the stuff that I've been reading, he talks about we live in a Genesis 3 world with a Genesis 1 blueprint on a Revelation 21 trajectory. I quite like that. Let me unpack that a little bit for you. Genesis 1. That story of creation, however you read it, and we're not getting into debates of that tonight, but however you read it, what we see is a God who out of love creates a world intentionally and creates humanity intentionally creates a world and creates humans male and female and puts them within physical bodies that are male and female 
The physical is, is important and is affirmed right throughout the Bible. God creates a physical world. He creates man and woman as physical beings. Jesus comes as a physical being into the world. He dies. And then when he is resurrected from the tomb, that resurrection is, is physical. He is resurrected into a physical body. He ascends into heaven and he promises to, to one day come again to, to restore and, and, and recreate a physical new heaven and new earth. At every part in the Bible story, we see the physical being honored by God. In that Genesis 1 story, God creates them male and female. And he does that because what he says is, it's as male and female, these two binary categories that you reflect the image of God. Maleness and femaleness are important because when we come together, we reflect the image of God. There's a Genesis 1 blueprint, but we live in a Genesis 3 world. What happens in Genesis 3 is Adam and Eve experience temptation. They succumb to temptation and sin enters the world. And whilst everything is still beautiful and everything still you know, has some reflection of the beauty of God, it's fractured, it's broken, it's less than it's meant to be. Is every one of your thoughts trustworthy? Is everything that goes on in your mind, every desire that you feel honorable to God? Do you trust every thought or do you have to recognize some are actually going to bring you down a path that, that you don't want to go down? That's certainly my experience of, of the world we live in and of the thoughts that go on in my head. We live in a fallen world. Things are sinful, things are broken, things are less than God intended them to be. Fast forward with me to, to Matthew 19, if you will. And Jesus is asked a question about marriage. Listen to his answer. He says, some Pharisees came and tested him. They asked, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any and every reason? Haven't you read, he replied, that at the beginning the Creator made them male and female? And he said, for this reason a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. Fast forward with me down to verse 11, and, it, and he said, Jesus replied to them, not everyone can accept this word but only those to whom it has been given. For there are eunuchs who were born that way, and there are eunuchs who, made, who were made eunuchs by others, and there are those who have chosen to live like eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. The one who can accept this should accept it. I find that fascinating in a conversation about maleness and femaleness, in a conversation about, about marriage and relationships, Jesus does some really interesting things. The first thing he does, he affirms God's design of maleness and femaleness. Even though the world is sinful, he says, there is maleness and there is femaleness. 
What's also interesting in that passage, though, he talks about eunuchs, and eunuchs are, are, are something maybe a, are a little bit different, and it's quite old language. But, but what I want you to see is that even then, even in Jesus' day, there was people who, who didn't fit into those binary categories of male and female in a classical understanding. And yet, even with that knowledge, Jesus still affirms God's blueprint of male and female. This is the way God has designed it, the physicality of male and female. This is the way that God has designed it. And he says something really interesting that often we take to think about an individual couple who get married. He says, what God has joined together, let no one destroy, let no one deconstruct. But actually, when you take a step back from that and look at what he's saying, he's affirming God's blueprint of male and female, and he's saying, let nobody deconstruct that. In a world that is sinful, in a world that is broken, let nobody deconstruct that. So we live with the blueprint of God's design, but we live in a world that is broken where where people don't necessarily naturally fit into those categories. But we live on a Revelation 21 trajectory. In Revelation 21, it talks about, about one day Jesus will come back. One day he will make everything new. One day he will make everything right. One day he will wipe every tear from the eye. There'll be no more suffering, no more struggling both emotionally, psychologically, physically, no more pain. Because he's going to make all things new. And he does this by his death on the cross when he took all the sin of the world onto his body. He died and paid the price for the rebellion of humankind and the brokenness in creation. He rose again. And what we see in Jesus' resurrection is the first fruits of what we will experience and what the creation will experience. A new physical reality with no sin, no brokenness, no pain. And that is the promise for everybody who puts their trust in Jesus. For everybody. Your trajectory is to a place of peace, a place of hope, a place of forgiveness, a place where you don't experience struggle, a place where you don't experience turmoil. And I think, and I'm cautious speaking here as a cisgender man who is married with kids, I'm cautious speaking here, but, but I can't help but feel that hope and that promise of a future with no struggle and no pain is such an invitation and such a promise to those today who experience gender dysphoria. A certainty that that pain and struggle will not last forever. A certainty that, that what culture is offering today cannot promise. So how does this Christian blueprint help us to think and help us respond to this conversation about transgender and to individual people in our lives who experience gender dysphoria. And I get this is a heavy night. If you need to breathe or pass sweets around, it's okay to do that. But it was never going to be a light topic. 
Mark Yarhouse is the leading Christian psychologist on the area of transgender. Google him, read about him. Uh, he, he is right up there. He is respected on all fields, or by all, all positions. He's the leading Christian psychologist on the area of transgender. And he says for Christians today, there are different lenses, different frameworks we can use to think about and approach this area of transgender. I'm going to read some of this for you because I think it's important. So first of all, he talks about the design framework, sometimes called the integrity framework. This view emphasizes the sacred integrity of maleness and femaleness in creation and the importance of their compatibility. One's biological sex is an essential aspect of one's personhood, and to tamper with it is a denial of something sacred. The concern is around a denial of the integrity of one's own sex and an overt attempt at marring the sacred image of maleness and femaleness formed in us by God. It holds up the physicality and says there's something sacred in that. It's an integrity issue. It's a design issue. And for some Christians, that's the lens they, they look through and understand the area of transgender about. For others, they, they look through a lens called the disorder framework. This view asserts that gender dysphoria is a non-moral mental health disability in which sex and gender are not in alignment and are therefore to be addressed with compassion. The analogy is made with someone suffering from depression or anxiety. We do not discuss their emotional state as a moral choice, but a condition that manifests, sorry, manifests as a result of the fall. A person may make choices in response to the symptoms of an overall treatment approach which may have ethical or moral dimensions, but they did not choose their condition and they are not morally culpable for it. The disorder framework, recognizing it's out of sync, is out of order. Then the diversity framework, and some Christians uh, will adopt this view. On this view, the diversity framework, transgender issues are seen as something to be celebrated and honored as part of normal human diversity. It answers the identity and community questions for many trans people, helping them feel accepted. In its strongest form, proponents of this framework seek to completely deconstruct sex and gender, to lose completely the, the titles, the areas of male and female. And health professionals in the broader culture are largely, not exclusively, but largely moving towards this diversity framework. Yarhouse, though, suggests actually that a really healthy approach is an integrated approach of these three lenses. To maintain the integrity in sex differences, there is maleness, there is femaleness. People don't necessarily feel they fit within those, but, but those are, are real categories, real categories given to us by God. To respond with compassion and to help the individual. It's not their choice to, to be this way, to feel this way. They are struggling. They're being torn apart. Respond gently. Respond pastorally. Respond with compassion. Respond in love. 
but your house recommends that, that the best approach within this is to help them to reconcile how to live within their biological sex, within the body that God has given them. And if they really struggle to do that, help them to find the least invasive physical way to find peace within that body. And he says, surround them with community. Surround them with love. Walk with them. Journey with them. Let nobody feel isolated. Let nobody have to do this walk on their own. That's a huge amount of, of theology, of cultural analysis, of conversation that's above me probably as well. Pastorly, how are we supposed to respond? As Christians created in the image of God, sitting in front of a friend who is experiencing gender dysphoria, running and being part of a church that is called to show the love and the truth of Christ. How are we supposed to respond? What does this look like? With this, we finish. First thing, it's a pastoral response. The first thing, this is painful. Recognize that in people's lives. Somebody tells you they're experiencing gender dysphoria, recognize how brave they have been to share this. How much it has taken them to risk speaking this out loud especially to you if you're a Christian, because everything in the back of their head is saying, this person's going to judge me, this person's going to reject me. Recognize the pain that they are living with. Don't speak. Just simply listen to their story. Painful. Second P, pronouns and names. One of the things people ask me is, you know, what do I call someone who is transgender? How do I address them? Do I address them as he? Do I address them as she? What, what? When I meet somebody new and they tell me their name, I don't question that. No matter what I think, no matter what I feel, it's just rude not to call them what they ask to be called. And yeah, there's maybe a whole journey to go on with them. Yeah, that's fine. But when you first meet somebody and they tell you their name, I think it's respectful to, to call them that. Third thing, recognize when it, you're talking about people and when you're talking about policies. I think way too often as the church, we, we mess this up. I also think way too often, and, and to be fair, people in the, the trans community mess this up as well. I think there is a place for Christians to be intelligent and to be clever and to engage in, in, in government and to engage uh, with education authority, to engage with law, to engage with policy-making bodies to lobby, to articulate clearly and with intelligence and with good scientific research to back it up, 
to articulate what we believe is a better way. But when you're sitting with someone or when you're engaging with a community and and this is their story, lead with compassion. Jesus loved people and he debated issues and, and, and he didn't often do the same thing in the same conversation. There is a time to listen to someone and love them. And there's also a place to to lobby and to engage in debate. Be smart and be compassionate and be wise and recognize which is which. And finally, our practice as church. People aren't perfect. You're not perfect. Sorry to burst your bubble. I'm not perfect. Sorry if that bursts your bubble as well. People are not perfect. People who walk through that door for the first time are not perfect. Their lives are not completely sanctified by the Holy Spirit in line with the gospel. Guess what? You've been coming here 50 years. Your life's not perfect either. It's not People are on a journey, and the first time they come through those doors, they're right at the very beginning of that journey. We want to be a church that says that you can belong before you have to believe and before your life has to look like you believe. You can belong here. And the very first thing I said when I stood on stage tonight is you are welcome in this place. If this is your first time here, we want to put our arms around you and say you are part of this family. And you can go at your own speed. You can go at your own pace. You can ask whatever questions you want. But you have a place in this church. You are welcome. You belong. And our hearts, our goal within this community is that that people will, will believe that belonging to a Christian community will bring them to a place where they believe. But our primary goal is not that you become cisgender. Our primary goal is that you encounter Jesus Christ, our resurrected Lord and Savior. First and foremost, that that is my heart for every single one of you, no matter what your gender identity is, no matter what your background is, no matter how often or how infrequently you've been in church. My heart is that that you discover tonight or on your journey with us as a church that, that Jesus is alive, that he is real, that he loves you, that he wants a relationship with you that begins maybe even tonight. And that you will be with him in eternity in that place with no more pain and no more suffering. That's our goal. That's our heart. You can go at your own speed, but that's our heart for you. And we're going to believe. We're going to believe that in a place where you are surrounded by Christian community. Because one of the biggest struggles for people uh, with transgender, or who are transgender, is the isolation and the fear. We want to surround you with a community who will love you for the rest of your life. We want to welcome you into our homes for meals. We want to do Bible studies with you and drink coffee with you and do life with you on your good days and your worst days. And we want to trust that surrounded by a community that that practice Christian non-judgmental love, and in intimacy with Jesus Christ through his word and through his spirit. 
that God will be at work in your life and help you to find a way to live at peace and experience peace in the body that he has given you. And we will walk with you on your good days and your bad days. Because I believe, as many in the world, and I know this is going to be contrary to to what seems to be happening in the medical world as well, I believe that saying to people, because you feel this way, we will help you alter your body. It's not an approach that's going to lead to wholeness. And these words that we started our service with tonight, that the Apostle Paul wrote 2,000 years ago, I think the Holy Spirit is breathing a fresh revelation onto our church and onto the world today. Speaking particularly into this conversation about trans and into people's lives who are experiencing gender dysphoria. Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good and pleasing and perfect will. Let's pray together. Father, allow your spirit, even in these moments of response, just to minister to each person in the room. Minister your truth. Minister your love. Bring peace into lives that feel torn apart. Your promise, Jesus, of of come to me, all you who are weary and brokenhearted, and you will find rest. Allow that promise to be fulfilled even tonight in this place. Be gentle with us, Lord. But tonight we put our hand in yours. Tonight we we bring every part of our lives under your lordship. Tonight we trust your good, your pleasing, your perfect plan for our lives. Tonight we bring to the foot of the cross any stereotypes and any prejudice that we feel within us. Any sense of self-righteousness, we repent of it now. Any sense of pride, we repent of it now. Lord, I ask, 
as we move into worship, meet with and minister to those tonight who are struggling with your word on this issue. And let them know they are welcome in this house. And let them know that your arms are open. And that what you are offering is so much more than they can possibly imagine. In Jesus' name.